But what we're going to talk about today in our message is not common courage. It's not just facing simple fears, but it's an uncommon courage. It's the type of courage that we just read in our passage. David's mighty men were a group of men who displayed an uncommon courage. And the story of their lives, of their acts of courage, is recorded in the pages of Scripture for all time. For all of us to study, to learn from, and to apply in our own lives. What they did in these passages is uncommon. It's not everyday average courage. It's not a simple facing of fear, but it's an uncommon courage that requires us to step outside of ourselves and to do things that we never thought we were capable of. And we're able to do that because we're trusting in God's power to bring it to completion. The men we're going to look at today did that. They believed in what they believed. They trusted in their leader. They believed in their country, they believed in their God, and they weren't afraid to stand up for it wherever they encountered it, in battle with these men, with the Philistines, wherever it may have been. They displayed an uncommon courage. That's a courage that I think we don't see too much of today in our own time. Now, there are some of you here who are probably in the military, have served in the military, and have displayed that type of courage. But for most of us who have not, that type of courage is, is hard to find today. Often today, people won't hardly stand up for anything. They certainly won't stand up for the things they believe in. They may stand up for something in which they may gain something, but to stand up for their beliefs or their faith is getting pretty uncommon. God never intended it that way for us. He intended for us to stand up and be bold and be courageous in our beliefs, to stand up and be courageous in defending our faith, in defending our Lord, in defending our leaders, in defending our country. That is what he intended for us. That's what these men in 2 Samuel chapter 23 have done. That's what he expects of us. The last several weeks, we've been looking at Benaiah, the lion chaser, a man who chased a lion down in a pit on a snowy day and with his bare hands killed a lion. He was one of David's mighty men, Scripture records. There's 37 of those mighty men, and Benaiah was but one of them. The three that we're going to talk about today were not just members of the 37, but they were the three, the cream of the crop, the top of the group. These were the three. If you read about all of the other mighty men, it says they did these amazing and valiant and courageous things, but they did not attain to the three. The three we'll talk about today were even greater than Benaiah because of what they've done. And they're held up for us as an example of how we should live our own lives in defense of our Lord and of our faith. Now, none of us in here are ever going to encounter a Philistine on a battlefield, but we encounter battles in our life every day. The principles is what we're interested in today. There are principles in this passage that we want to draw out and apply in our own lives. We want to use those in order not only to prove something to God, God already knows what we're capable of and what we'll do in any situation, but to prove to ourselves that we are who we say we are. So the question is, have we done anything courageous? Not only that, but have we done anything courageous that is uncommon? Okay? Have we displayed this kind of courage? And that's what we're going to look at. Five principles today. How do I exhibit uncommon courage? How do I do that? Well, number one, I need to acknowledge that I have an obliga obligation to do so in the first place. 
Okay, I need to acknowledge my obligation. In this first part of the passage, we're introduced to these three characters, to these three guys, and we're given their names. And I think a lot of time when we read scripture, we have a tendency to kind of skip over these introductory passages where it, it lists who they are, where they came from, who their parents were. But those things are recorded for a reason. They're important for us to understand, and they go to the, uh, to the heart of our point here about acknowledging our obligation before God. These people came from somewhere. They are identified by name. They are identified by family. They are identified by their place of origin. Why? Because all of those things contribute to who they are. They indicate expectations for these men, but they also indicate obligations as well. Okay, let's look at just these few examples here. Number one, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Number one, Josheb Bashhebeth. I don't know if I got that right. It's the best I can do. This man was a Tachimanite. Okay, a Tachimanite. This is the place he came from. He was the chief of the three. There was another who stood next to him, and his name was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He's being identified by who he comes from, his family lineage, his parentage. And next to him was the third man, Shema, the son of Agi, the Ararite. So we see that these men have names. They're identified by name. They're identified by their family. They're identified by their place of origin. Why? Because all of those things indicate expectations and obligations for these men. If you look at the importance of names, we still place that importance on names today. They indicate expectations for us, do they not? People identify by their last name. In biblical times, in Hebrew times, they were identified by who their father was. Today, we're identified by our last name. My last name is McClellan. That indicates a number of different things about who I am, where I come from, maybe what other people in my family are like, and so forth and so on. It indicates and tells something about me. It, it contributes to people's expectations or understandings of who I am. We also identify ourselves by our families, who we come from, who all's in our family. That also indicates to people something about us. If you remember the, the battles that went on 100 or so years ago between the Hatfields and McCoys, think about that. If you were identified as a Hatfield, you were hated by every McCoy. If you were the other, that was also true. Family names meant something. They indicated who you were, generally what you believed and what you did. People attributed value to you and to your character by how you were identified. For these men in our story, it was the same way. Where they come from, who their parents were, what their names are, indicates something about them. If you think about uh, how the Israelite tribes were identified, Almost everyone in the Bible was identified by the tribe they came from. Were they a Levite? Were they from the tribe of Judah? Were they from the tribe of Dan? The tribe they belonged to indicated something about them. Even in later times, if you look at, uh, we'll take my family history, for example. I come, a lot of my family comes from Scotland. We come from the Scottish Highlands. We were members of the clan McClellan. That's how they identified groups or families in the Scottish Highlands four or five hundred years ago. You came from a clan. That indicated who you were, who you came from, who your people were. People attributed value to your character based upon the clan from which you came. Some had good reputations, some had bad reputations, so forth and so on. My name is Michael McClellan Jr. I'm also a junior. I'm named after my father. It indicates something about me in the fact that I'm named after my dad, that I take after my dad. He gave me his name as his offspring. It indicates something about me by the name that I carry. 
each of these men that are introduced to us here in the beginning are identified by a name, a family, and a location. Where they come from. Why does location matter? Well, we all have certain beliefs about people based upon where they come from. Even in the New Testament, we look at how the disciples were criticized. Aren't these men from Galilee? What good thing comes out of Galilee, they said. So place of origin indicates something as well. Now, I tell you all of that for this purpose because I want to draw this all the way forward. We all in here as Christ followers identify ourselves by a name. We identify ourselves by the name of Jesus. We identify ourselves by a family, by the family of God, okay? And we come from a place. The Bible says that we are citizens of heaven. We are pilgrims here on earth while we're here. All of those things indicate something about us. They indicate expectations for who we are, what we should do, how we should live. But they also indicate an obligation. Once you surrendered your life to Christ, you gave up all of your rights, You surrendered your will, your life, your plans to Jesus. He now owns you. He now controls you. He now directs you. You now have an obligation to fulfill his will. You live under his obligation. So as Christ followers, we live under the will of Christ. And his word, Christ's word contained here in the Bible, reveals to us that we have an obligation to act. In any and every situation, Christ followers have an obligation to act. So being identified with him automatically obligates me to act in any situation, to display courage, to act boldly. I must do this. It is not an option. It is something that I must do. I need to acknowledge that obligation. Why? Because if I don't acknowledge the obligation, if I don't accept the obligation and apply it to my own life, I'm never going to be courageous in anything. Certainly not a person of uncommon courage. Acknowledging my obligation determines how and if I will react in any situation. So when I'm confronted with one of those lions that we keep talking about chasing, when I'm confronted with one of those fears in my life, I need to remember who I am, who I belong to, and what I must do. Because acknowledging the obligation to act is what, de- is what determines how I will respond. And that's why we begin here. We have to start somewhere. If we don't accept the obligation, you might as well head on back out the door. Because the rest of this message this morning isn't going to matter to you. Unless you've come to a place in your life where you recognize that as a Christ follower you have an obligation, the rest of this doesn't matter. Because these men in this story recognized their obligation. They knew where they came from. They knew who their parents were. They knew what their expectations were. They knew what the obligations that had been placed upon them were. And they acted upon that. They made their choices. They did the things they did because of that obligation. You and I as Christ followers have to do the same thing. Because of our obligation to Jesus, because we belong to him, we must act. So, how do I exhibit uncommon courage? First, I have to acknowledge my obligation. But secondly, then, I need to abandon any fear of opposition. Fear is what paralyzes us. Fear stops more people in their tracks than any opponent ever thought about doing. Just the fear of an opponent or a difficult situation stops people dead in their tracks. Fear paralyzes us. We, if we want to be a people of uncommon courage, have to abandon that fear. We can't be afraid of opposition, whether it be family members or friends or coworkers, strangers on the street, people in the media, people in the culture, whatever it may be, you as a Christian are going to encounter opposition, most likely daily. If you are afraid of that opposition, if you have a fear of the opposing viewpoint, 
you will never succeed and you will never become the courageous, courageous person that God has called you to be. You have to abandon that fear of opposition. It is paralyzing. And we see that in the three examples that are given here. If you look at these three men, it cites the things that they did. Every one of them required an enormous abandonment of fear. Just looking at the circumstances that they had found themselves in, that God had placed them in, would have paralyzed most people. But they didn't. They didn't freeze. They didn't flee. They didn't run away. They didn't shirk their responsibility. They acted. They abandoned that fear. If you look at that first example, uh, we're going to call him Joshib for short today because I'm not saying that whole name 50 times. He, Joshib, wielded his spear against 800 men. 800. We don't know the exact circumstances, how he found himself in the situation where he was up against 800, but he found himself there. It doesn't say that he ran away. It doesn't say that he gave up. It doesn't say that he tried to escape but failed. It says he went into battle. He wielded his spear against 800 men, and he killed every one of them. He was determined to fight instead of flee. Most of us are very acquainted with our fight or flight response that we have built into us. It's part of our DNA that God has built into us. When we come to a difficult situation, our first reaction is usually the one we follow. Either to fight, to stay and fight in a difficult circumstance, or to run, to flee, to take flight from the situation and get out of danger. Most of us take the path of flight. If we can avoid danger, if we can avoid risk, we go that way. But in this situation, Joseph here finds himself in, he doesn't run, he doesn't flee, he stays and fights. And he fights against 800 men. And it says that he killed every one of them at one time. This is not a cumulative total. He didn't kill 800 men over a series of years that he fought in battles. He didn't kill 800 men over a series of battles in time. He killed all of them at one time. Him alone. It doesn't indicate here that he was leading a group of men who killed 800. It doesn't indicate that there was any help. It says he alone wielded a spear against 800 men and he killed every one of them. He was determined to fight instead of flee. That's what we have to do as well. The second example is just as valid. Eleazar, let's look at him. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. Now look, between verse 9 and verse 10 right there, the word does not appear, but it's indicated by the text. There should be a but right there. The men of Israel withdrew, but Eleazar rose and he struck down the Philistines. It, the text is setting up a contrast here. What all the other men did and what Eleazar did. It's a contrast. The word but is implied in that text. He was displaying courage instead of cowardice in his example. They saw an army of the Philistines. They were gathered together there for battle. He was with David. He was with King David. They had all set up in a battle array. The Philistines come marching down. And now they're going to go to battle. What happens? All of the men of Israel withdraw. We don't know why. The text does not indicate what the situation was. If they were outnumbered, they were on low ground, they were out of supplies. We don't know. It just simply says that all of the other men withdrew. But Eleazar stayed. He stayed there and he fought. It says, but he rose up and he struck down the Philistines. He abandoned his fear of opposition. He didn't look at the overwhelming odds and run the other way. He didn't leave with all of the rest of the men who, who fled he didn't show cowardice, but instead he showed courage. He stayed and fought an army on his own. He was determined to be courageous rather than to exhibit cowardice. The third example, Shema. He demonstrated strength instead of surrender. 
Verse 11, the men fled from the Philistines, but he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and he struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. He took a stand. The rest of the men fled, but he took a stand. Do you suppose he's afraid? Certainly he was. Do you suppose he had fear? Certainly he did. Who wouldn't? But the plot of ground apparently was of of vital interest. When the other men fled and gave it up, he stayed. He took a stand. When he encountered a difficult situation, he didn't run away. He didn't leave someone else there to deal with it. He didn't refer them to someone else. He stayed and he fought. He showed strength instead of surrender. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He didn't give into a life of compromise. He didn't give into a life of mediocrity. He stood there for what he believed in. He defended his country. He defended this land. The land is always a picture of God. He stood there and he picked and he fought this battle. He picked a place to stand and he fought the battle. He displayed strength instead of surrender. You know, I think this reminds me of another story in the scriptures that we look at, I think, all too often and and miss maybe the point sometimes. If you go to Numbers chapter 14 and you take a look at the story of Joshua and Caleb, you remember they were gathered at the edge of the promised land and, and Moses told them to send out 12 spies into the promised land to spy it out, to see what was there, to see what resources were there, to see what people lived there and so forth and so on and come back with a report. Well, the 12 ran out and they came back and you remember 10 of the spies gave a negative report. They said, yeah, it's a great land, full of milk and honey, got great fruit, but there's giants there. There are giants that live there. There's no way we can overtake these people. We might as well go on back to Egypt. But two of the spies were faithful. Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, it's a land of milk and honey. Yeah, there are people who live there. There are giants who live in the land, but we can take them. With the help of God, with God going before us, with his power, with his strength, we can take them. That's the type of life that we need to be living out. We need to understand that when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, difficult situations, where there's not an easy way out, that we need to be willing to stand up for what we say we believe. God is the one who goes before us. God is the one who fights for us. It's in his strength and power that we go out. It's not in our own strength and power. That's why the 10 spies failed, and that's why so many of us failed. They were looking at things purely in terms of what they could do. And they knew that they couldn't overcome these people in their own power, in their own strength, and they let their fear take over. And that's what a lot of us do. We let our fear take over because we examine circumstances in view of our own ability. We look at what we think we can do rather than what God can accomplish. And I guarantee you, when you evaluate circumstances in those terms, you will fail every single time. Because the circumstances that God places you in are not ones that you can overcome on your own. He deliberately places you in circumstances that only he can overcome. Because he's trying to teach you to be faithful. He's trying to help you understand that with him anything is possible. To trust in him and him alone. Not to look to your own ability. He wants us to understand that he's fighting for us. It's in his power that we go out wherever that may be. And oftentimes I think that you and I think, well these stories in the Bible about men going into battle and so forth and so on. That's never going to happen to me. And chances are for a lot of you it won't. But the battles that we fight are not simply military battles. We fight battles every day. Some of us fight battles in our own families with unbelievers. Some of us fight battles with our coworkers or our employers. All of us fight battles with our culture. 
Day in and day out, day in and day out, we fight these battles. Are we in our own power and our own strength ever going to overcome them? No. That's the flaw in our thinking. We think that if there's enough of us and we band together, that we can overtake them and we'll win. No, we won't. We won't do that. It's only in God's power that we overcome anything. He is the one that wins battles. The battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. What we are responsible for doing is setting aside our fear, abandoning that fear of opposition, of conflict, and getting engaged in the battle, wherever that may be. The circumstance is different for each and every one of you that are here today. But whatever your circumstances is that God has placed you in, you have a responsibility to engage with the people in that circumstance, to abandon that fear. Don't let it overtake you. Don't let it paralyze you and put you into fear where you cannot accomplish what God has placed you here to accomplish. Fear stops more of us in our tracks than any opponent ever thought about. It's not the actual opponent. It's not the actual circumstance that stops us. We don't go in and try and fail. We never even leave the starting line. Fear paralyzes before we ever even go out into the battle. And that's what's being illustrated here in this text. The fear that these men were able to set aside is what allowed them to be successful. If they had maintained that fear and went out, chances are they would have lost. But they set aside that fear for trust in God, and they went out in strength, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, it says, in each and every one of those situations. So I have to abandon that fear, but I also need to affirm God's omnipotence. Number three, if you look at that in verse 10, he, Eleazar, rose. That's the important part of the text. It's highlighted on your screen. He rose, and the Lord brought about a great victory. It doesn't indicate to us that he was extremely strong, uh, very gifted in military tactics, had any supernatural ability or gift. It doesn't say any of those things. What is linked here is the fact that he rose and God brought about a great victory. That's what God is calling on us to do. We need to rise. We need to take our stand. And through that, God will bring about victory. It's not our ability, it's not our strength, it's not our wisdom. We're not going to outsmart them, outgun them. It's God who's going to bring about victory. We need to be willing to cooperate with God in what he's doing. We need to rise to the occasion. Once we abandon that fear, we need to rise to that occasion. If you look at the other uh, passage there in verse 12. um, But he, Shema, took his stand and the Lord worked a great victory. Same point, same principle. What's being indicated? The fact that they rose, the fact that they took a stand is what brought about the victory. The fact they were willing to cooperate with God. People of uncommon courage always realize that they have an obligation to act, but they also recognize that God is the one who brings the victory. Okay? They realize their obligation. I must do something. I must cooperate with God in this difficult circumstance or situation. But God is the one who will bring about victory. I cannot overcome all of that out there. I can't do that, but God can. If I'm willing to cooperate with him and take a stand, he will bring about victory through me. Okay? That's what's being illustrated with these two men. People of uncommon courage also realize their willingness to fight makes the difference. If we sit on the sidelines, what gets accomplished? Nothing. 
But it's our willingness to fight, our willingness to engage that brings about the victory. It's what makes the difference. So many of us never have the opportunity to fail or to succeed because we never leave the bench. We have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to get off the bench, off the sideline, and get into the game, get into the battle. We won't always have success. You know that as well as I do. But what we will have is blessing from God when we cooperate with him in what he wants us to do and what he expects of us to do. It is our willingness that helps to bring about victory. God doesn't need us to win anything, does he? He could have had a simple thought in his mind and extinguished the entire Philistine people and it would have been all over and done with. He doesn't need us for anything. But he expects and calls upon us to cooperate with him in what he is already doing. It reminds me of another example from Scripture. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, we've talked about this a couple of times the last few weeks. The story of David and Goliath, uh, starting in verse 41. And the Philistine Goliath moved forward and he came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, pay attention to this now. In verse 44, 45, excuse me. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, at that, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." He will give you into our hand. David recognized what Joseph, Eleazar, and Shema all recognized. The battle belongs to God. It wasn't their ability. It wasn't their sword, their spear, their strength, their wisdom, any of those things. The battle belonged to God. He was the one who would deliver. We have to remember to apply that in our own lives and our own circumstances. The battle belongs to God. What God expects for us to do is to engage, to get into the battle, to be courageous, to be willing to stand up and to fight, not to shirk away in fear when somebody challenges our views or challenges our faith, but to stand up boldly for what we believe, to champion our faith and our beliefs and our values, and God will bring about victory. That is what he expects of us. That is what he calls upon us. We must affirm that it is God's power, not our own, that brings about these victories. It was in the stories from 2 Samuel chapter 23. It is in our own lives today. It is God's power working through us that brings about victory. So I need to affirm God's omnipotence. It is his power. It is his strength. Where does my strength from come from? It comes from the Lord. It is his power. But I also need to act. Okay, I have to acknowledge that I have an obligation. Otherwise, I'll never get in the game. I have to abandon my fears. If I don't abandon my fears, I'll never get in the game. I have to recognize that it's God's power that's bringing about victory anyway. I affirm God's omnipotence. But all of those things are mental. Now we come to the physical. Now we come to the practical. I must act. I must act to accomplish my objective, whatever that may be. 
I don't know what circumstances God has set up in your life. I don't know what opponents he has put in your life right now. But he is calling you to do something. Not just hear something. Not just intake knowledge and principles and truth. But to do something. He wants you to act. Would these stories of these men in 2 Samuel ever have been recorded if they failed to act? No. It is because they acted in faith and trust in God that their stories are recorded. We must act if we want to accomplish our objective. You fill in that blank. Whatever your objective is, whatever God is calling you to do, whatever he expects you to accomplish, that is what you need to act upon. You need to take concrete, practical steps and act in order to accomplish that objective. That's what the men in our story did. That's what we're called upon to do as well. What is my responsibility in any of these situations? Well, we need to remember this. People of uncommon courage act while others sit on the sideline. They don't sit on the sideline. They get in the game. They act. They do something. They make something happen. Verse 9 Eleazar was with David when they defied the Philistines and he rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary. Get that. He struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary. He didn't kill one or two or ten until his hand was weary. He was exhausted from killing Philistines. Okay? Not just a handful. Exhausted. He went at it so long, so forcefully, so hard that his hand became weary He probably almost couldn't even hold it up any longer. He exhausted it. Why? Because he got in the game. He saw what needed to be confronted. There was a Philistine army who was stacked up, arrayed against his country, against his people, against his leader, against his God. He engaged. He got in the game. He fought the battle. And he fought it until his hand became weary, until he was exhausted, until he was tired and worn out. How many of us today are fighting that battle to the point of exhaustion? until we're worn out and completely tired. That's what God is calling upon us to do, to fight until we become weary, until we're worn out. Not just make a little effort here and there when it's convenient, not just put in a little time once a week, but to fight, fight, fight until we become worn out from fighting, until we're exhausted from working so hard at what God has called us to do. People of uncommon courage act when others scurry away. Even when the other people are running away, people of uncommon courage stay and fight. They don't run with the crowd. They stay. They stand there. They fight. Eliezer fought until his hand was weary. Let's look at the other guy, Shema. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. There was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But Shema took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines. He stood there. He defended the plot of ground. He didn't run away. It says everyone else left. They're like, dude, you can have the field. We don't want it. They they ran away. They weren't willing to sacrifice anything to protect it. Shema, not so. He stayed. It says he got in the middle of the plot of the ground, and he stood there ready for battle. And he defended it. And the indication here is that he won. He didn't lose. He won. He stood there. He defended his ground, and he slaughtered the Philistines. He was one who didn't run away. We can't be people who run away either. We cannot run from a fight. That is what causes us to lose. We must stand and fight. C.S. Lewis said this one time. He said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, 
Courage itself is not a virtue. But what he said was, it is rather the form of every virtue at its testing point. Courage itself is not a virtue. There are other virtues, love, compassion, grace, mercy, all of those kinds of things. Those are virtues. Courage itself, C.S. Lewis said, is not a virtue. But rather it is the display of every other virtue at its testing point. What is the testing point of love? What did Jesus say about love? Jesus said there's, that no man has any greater love than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. Right? That's the testing point of love. When is love displayed in its fullest context? At its testing point. When it costs us the most, that's where courage kicks in. Courage is not in and of itself. It is not isolated as a virtue. It is something that comes into play when the other virtues are tested. Okay? When your love for someone, when your grace, when your compassion for other people, when your mercy for other people, whatever it may be, when those reach the point now where it's going to cost me something, where it's now a burden upon me to continue to love, to have mercy on, to show compassion to, that's when courage kicks in and takes over. Courage allows me to display those virtues to its fullest extent, even in the face of failure, even in the face of sacrifice, of loss, all of those different things. These men in the story did that. It wasn't that they simply had the gift of courage alone. They had other virtues. Their courage was displayed in the fact that they were willing to go all the way. They weren't willing to stop when things began to cost them something. They, I'm sure every one of these men in these stories looked at the odds, looked at the men gathered in the field against them that day and thought, why am I here? Why do I need to do this? I'm going to run away like the rest of those guys. But they didn't. They stayed and they fought. They fought to the testing point and it was in that that their courage was displayed. Okay? Life presents a series of choices for each and every one of us. You encounter choices from the moment you get out of bed in the morning until you lay your head back down at the end of night. Life presents a series of choices, particularly for Christ followers. We have a number of choices to make that are even on a higher level than ordinary people because the, the faith that we believe, the beliefs that we have calls to live to a higher standard, which increases the difficulty of the choices and the decisions we have to make. We have to be willing to demonstrate courage in each and every one of those situations. We have to be willing to not compromise. We have to be not willing to give in to what someone else wants us to do. A lot of us today, a lot of people in our culture today are living lives of mediocrity. They don't live to any set standard. They, they have a floating standard. They just kind of go with the wind, go with the flow wherever life takes them. That's not the life that God has called us as Christ followers to live. He expects us to live up to the standard. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. That's what he expects. He expects us to follow him in any circumstance, in every circumstance. We have to make a conscious choice to do that. God gives us the power. He empowers us to accomplish what he's called us to do. But we have to take steps to actually engage. Okay, we have to engage. Finally, we have to advance despite overwhelming odds. This is probably the hardest part and had to be for the men in our story. We have to keep advancing despite overwhelming odds. They didn't just hold the ground. 
Okay, they didn't just defend something. What's indicated here by the text is that these men were advancing. They were on the offensive. They were attacking. They were advancing. That's what God has called each and every one of us to do and to be. And a a people who are advancing. We're advancing the gospel wherever we can. In every circumstance, in every situation that we can. We're not simply building walls and trying to protect what God has entrusted to us. And hiding out and waiting for Jesus to get back. At least we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be advancing the gospel, going outside of the walls, attacking, engaging, battling, fighting, struggling, doing all of these different things that lend and tend toward the accomplishment of the advancement of the gospel. In our story this morning, each of these men advanced in whatever they were doing. There's three examples. People of uncommon courage advanced despite the probability of failure. It wouldn't be called courageous if it wasn't probable to fail, right? I mean, we really don't call courageous things, call them courageous if they're likely to succeed. Courage usually kicks in when something is likely to fail. Each of these men were facing overwhelming odds. Even when they looked out and saw that the probability was that they were going to fail, they still engaged. They still fought. Joshua wielded his spear against 800 men whom he killed at one time. 800 guys. Can you, there are not 800 people in this room. If I handed you a spear, would you want to stand here and take on every person in this room and have victory? I don't care who you are. You're not taking on 800 men by yourself, okay? This guy took on 800 people. He had to know that it was possible, if not probable, that he might fail and die. But it didn't stop him. He still continued to advance. He still continued to move forward. Okay, look at the next example. Eleazar, people of uncommon courage, advanced despite the pain. Eleazar was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. We talked about this a moment ago. He fought until he was exhausted and completely worn out. And the passage says that his hand clung to the sword. It was stuck there is what it means. He couldn't let go of the sword. He had most likely muscle cramps. He had been wielding that sword for so long that his muscles had cramped in that position and he couldn't let go. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. I have, not with a sword, but with a tool. We use a pickaxe or a pickmatic to strip forms off of concrete, off of driveways and sidewalks. You put a pickmatic in your hand, you go along the edge of the form, and you hammer, and you hammer, and you hammer until you break off all the stakes, and you can pull the forms away. You do that for about two hours, you're going to be stuck like this. You can't let go. Your muscles and your tendons and everything cramp up, and they tighten around that tool, and you can't let go. I mean, we used to get to the point where we, when we were stripping forms, you sometimes have to have somebody come over and peel your fingers back from the handle because they were cramped so tightly, so badly, you couldn't let go of it. And you'd have to forcibly open your fingers up and get, to get them to loosen up and to relax. That's what's being indicated in the story here with Eleazar. He fought until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. He'd been fighting so long and so hard he couldn't let go. He fought despite the pain. He fought through the pain and he kept on going. He never stopped. He never gave up until he had won his battle. Thirdly, people of uncommon courage advanced despite the peril. Shema. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and he defended it and he struck down the Philistine. He stood in the middle of this ground. He had to know the peril. 
Everyone else had left. He's in the middle of the plot of ground. We don't know how big it is. Let's assume it's several acres. It's probably a fairly large plot of ground if there's an army gathered there. Everybody else leaves. They take off, probably hopped on their chariots and away they went. This dude stands in the middle of the plot and takes on the army. Takes on a whole army. What do you suppose was going through his mind as he was considering this? What have I gotten myself into here? That's a lot of dudes, right? He had to be thinking something like that. Yet he's standing there, probably with his sword or his spear or both, and he takes on an entire army. How many of us, when we evaluate circumstances and situations, evaluate the risk or the peril? All of us do. That's how we make 99.9% of our decisions. What is the least risky decision I can make and keep moving, right? This guy did the exact opposite. He was in that 0.1%. He looked at the most difficult thing he could do and did that. To stand in the middle of a plot of ground against an entire army arrayed against you. Uncommon courage. He was willing to stand despite the peril to himself. Okay? Courage is expressed in light of the probability of failure. You need to remember that. Courage is expressed in light of the probability of failure. It is not expressed in the probability of success. Okay? Courage kicks in when things are hard, when they are unlikely to succeed. Are we always going to succeed in what we endeavor to do? The answer to that is no. We will not always have temporary success. We may do things that God has asked us to do, and they fail. But that is not the point. We are not charged with the outcome of our obedience. We are charged with obedience We are to do what God has called us to do. We are to obey. Would any of these guys' stories be any less valid if they had died? I don't know. I'd have to think about that for a little while. That's a tough question. But I would make a case for you that the outcome did not determine their courage. It was their obedience. They were willing to do what they were supposed to do, what God had called them to do. They were willing to engage. They were courageous. They succeeded. And maybe that's why we have the stories today, because we see the success that was granted through an obedient servant. But courage is always expressed in the probability of failure. You need to remember that. You won't always have success in your endeavors, but that shouldn't stop you from continuing to engage and to fight and to be bold and be courageous in whatever situation you find yourself in. The question we posed at the beginning of this message, have you done anything courageous? Well, as I told you with my story in the zip line, my courage is pretty common, I found out. Have you ever done anything that is uncommonly courageous? What is God asking you to do in your life today? What is he expecting from you? What circumstances has he introduced in your life that you need to be engaging with? What opponent has he set in front of you that you need to attack or need to tackle or dispose of? What is God doing in your life right now that requires your courage? Not just everyday courage, not courage that's expressed in the probability of success, but something that is hard, that is difficult, that only you can do, that God is calling you, can do, you to do. That's the question for us today. Am I of uncommon courage? Am I that kind of person? Do I even want to be that kind of person? The question goes all the way back to our first point. Have we acknowledged our responsibility or acknowledged our obligation? 
And if you've at least acknowledged that it's there, have you accepted it? There's a difference between recognizing something I should do and accepting now that I'm bound to act. Have I come to that place in my life where I accept that obligation in my life? That I am required to do something because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, what fear is holding me back? I don't know what your fears are. I don't know what the opponents in your life are. God has placed them there. I do know that. I have mine. You have yours. We are to stand up to our opponents. We are to abandon that fear. What fear is holding you back? What fear do you need to let go of and engage with that opponent that God has placed in your life? I don't know what that is, but I guarantee you probably every one of you sitting here does. You know what your fear is. Most of us are not lacking with understanding. We're lacking in application. We know what our fear is. We just refuse to do anything about it. So what is my fear? What's holding me back? Thirdly, what can God's power accomplish through me? What can God do through me that I never would have expected? Well, the answer to that is anything. God can do anything through a willing servant. Can he? He can do anything through a willing servant. But if I refuse to engage, if I don't participate, if I don't get in the battle, if I don't abandon my fear, if I don't do any of those things, God's not going to do anything through me. I've got to get in the game and be a part of the fight. What's holding me back? My fear is, what can God's power do through me? Anything. What is my first step to accomplish that? What is the first step I need to take to accomplish my objective? There are going to be pastors over here in our next steps area in just a moment who can help you answer some of those questions. What is my next step? And then finally, how can I advance in the face of overwhelming odds? I don't know what battles you're facing. I don't know what opponents you're facing. And I don't know how the odds are stacked against you. I know as a Christ follower, as a member of a Christian church, that the odds are stacked against us. Generally speaking in the world, our culture is stacked against us. There are many more of them out there who don't know the Lord and need to than there are of us. And those people are attacking. They are advancing. They are trying to take ground. They are trying to stamp us out or marginalize us, move us into the shadows. But we are to be a people who are advancing. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has placed it within each and every one of us as Christ followers. We are to take that into the world, take that to people who desperately need to hear that message. We're not to build walls, to build buildings, to build churches, to hide out in and wait for Christ's return. We are to get outside and engage that culture. Though those odds may be stacked against us, though they may seem overwhelming, that does not eliminate our obligation, our responsibility to engage and to advance the gospel of Christ. Those are the things that we need to be doing. Those are the components of uncommon courage. Are you doing those? Are you doing some of those? Are you doing none of those? Are you willing to do any of those? We would love to help you with that this morning. We would love to talk through what your next step needs to be. Let's pray this morning.
Yo.